Hey listeners, do you enjoy movies? So do we. And that's why we record Nerds on Film, our weekly podcast where it's just us sitting around making jokes and talking movies. In fact, if you guys have not subscribed to that already, you really should. I'll wait. Have you done it yet? You haven't? What is wrong with you? You're super lazy, right? Jeez, we made it really easy. You just go to nerdonomy.com and you click the freaking iTunes button. Stop procrastinating, get off your lazy ass, and go do it. Thank you. Well, I guess I'll have to do the episode by myself again this week. Ah, well, I've done it before. It's not the end of the world. I guess if I just keep it simple and to the point, it should be no. No problem. What the hell? Come on in. What's up, buddy? Dude, what are you doing? What are you doing here? I just decided to come to California, man. I've actually, I actually got in a little while ago. I just haven't seen you. I've been hanging out with friends and crashing on couches and stuff. Really? Okay. Um, when did you get in? Uh, it was about a week ago. I got in on uh, Sunday. A week ago. Yeah. Uh huh. Did you bring your gun with you by chance from? Yeah, Colorado. Yeah, uh, yeah because Papa wanted to go shooting, and he said, you know, let's go shooting, and so we did. Uh, uh, and what kind of gun do you? Do you have? It's a uh, Sig nine millimeter. A, a pistol. Yeah. Semi-automatic. Yeah. It's a fantastic piece of machinery. Uh Ah. Welcome to Nerd Zone History. I am Brian Moriarty, and uh, if you were listening last week, you know that Eric Brickmont. My dear friend and co-host is in a coma, as well as on paternity leave. And, well, so, we'll see how far that really goes. But anyway, uh, joining me tonight in the Nerd Cave is another Nerds on Film co-host. And he's not really quite in the Nerd Cave. He's really joining me from Colorado. And his first time on Nerds on History, by the way. Uh, let's welcome my brother, Sean Moriarty. Hello, everybody. So, I'm really excited because I know you've wanted to be on this for a long time. Yeah, but I had to do some training. Um, I talked to some Buddhist monks, and they taught me how to remove swearing completely from my vocabulary and how not to mention certain offensive things that are common to my vocabulary. Right. Yeah, We were worried because that might be the only ever time we might get kicked off the iTunes store just because, you know, you say something about... I don't even want, I don't even want to go there, to be honest. No, we don't have to. That's Nerds on Film takes care of all that. All right. How you doing, sir? Good. I'm good. I'm still reeling from our Oscar podcast. That was super awesome. And I know not not a whole lot of people <laughs> listen to it, but it was a whole lot of fun. And it was fun to announce uh, Roxy is going to be part of the Nerds on Film team. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I liked the uh, Google Hangout because that was able to let you join in. You know, we had a couple bugs we had to work out, but no, no broadcast is going to be perfect. So we'll, we learned a lot from it and we look forward to doing the next live episode in the near future. What about you? How are you doing? I know I just recently suggested that you tell people at work that you pooped your pants so that you could get out <laughs> early. I invoke the 10-minute rule at work. Uh, you know, uh, I won't go into too much specifics because I have coworkers who listen to the podcast, but um, my work for the day had ended about 10 minutes early. And so uh, instead of wasting company time, I thought I would just clock out early. Was it, which... a, was it a good day? Did anybody verbally abuse you today? Oh, because of the, being Ash Wednesday? I and I, Wait, have, I don't me, do people verbally abuse people on Ash Wednesday. Is that a thing? If by verbal abuse you mean, hey, what's that on your forehead? Then I was abused profusely uh, today. <laughs> Ash to... Wednesday, in my opinion, has a lot to do with Bruce Campbell and the Army of Darkness. 
Can you explain that, please? Because I didn't get that, the reference. Because his name is Ash. Oh, duh. Dork. Like, <laughs> Ash <feel> like, Wednesday. <laughs> I feel so dense all of a sudden. You are the worst nerd ever right now. Well, because you have the whole, like, this is my boomstick pose. I'm like, wait, what does that have to do with Lent? I don't get it. And then I realized, oh, it's Ash. So, <clears throat> that's how I am. What uh, do you say we get into some listener feedback? Sure. This week in listener feedback. Oh, Eric, how I wish you would wake up from your coma. Uh, our first piece of feedback comes from our number one fan, allegedly. Again, she is in stiff competition between Kyla and... Yeah, we are still awaiting a Thunderdome-style situation where both of them enter, yet only one of them leaves to determine who really is Nerdonomy's number one fan. Well, we'll see. We'll, we, will, we will see if that ever happens. That'd be kind of cool if it does. Anyway, subject is donation. Ooh. Uh, hello, everyone. I would like to make a public challenge to my smart, funny, and oh-so-cute nephew, Eric. I will either donate... He's not ten- that cute. Well. <laughs> I will either donate $10 a month for a year or one lump sum of $120 when Eric gets his driver's license. Let me know... What? Wait, Eric doesn't have a driver's license? No, he doesn't. He Really? Has- he has actually never needed one because... He has three children and he doesn't have a driver's license. That's insane. Well, I think he might need to get one in the near future because his wife is going to be laid up after they have the baby. So, um, but he's never needed one because he's he's always lived in very close proximity to where he's worked, and um, when he's needed to, he's just done public transportation. So, uh, yeah, just never never been a necessity for him. Well, he's going to have to now because I want that money. I'm going to yeah. get that money. I think it's a good incentive. I agree. And uh, she closes with "Keep up the good work. Love you guys, Aunt Teresa." Well, Aunt Teresa, the gauntlet has been thrown. We will see what Eric does. We will oh, keep Eric's you... going to do it. We'll keep him updated. We'll keep if the... Tickling or Noogies have anything to say about it, it's going to happen. How are you going to enforce that, dude? What are you going to do? I'll be there in April. You know this. Oh, that's right. Coming soon, guys. We'll actually have you in the Nerve Cave live for one of our episodes. Pretty yeah. Cool. All right. Our next piece of feedback is from Mike Henderson. Subject line, general feedback and a couple episode ideas. He says, I just wanted to say that I really do enjoy the podcast and I'm making my way back through some of the more interesting ones like the pandemic episode. Fifty Shades of Black Death. (laughs) That was an awesome title. I heavily enjoyed it and having an interest in infectious viruses isn't strange at all since I have a personal interest in level four viruses like Ebola, which is actually a fascinating organism. And after listening to a few episodes of Stuff You Missed in History Class, I have to say, I think you were right up there with them and actually provided me with a few ideas for articles that I'm planning on writing. The ideas that I have for episodes are the following. History of role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. That sounds awesome. History of the Reich Security Office and the Night and Fog Order, both of which have interesting histories and its head until 1942 named Reinhard Heydrich. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Because I know we did have some feedback from a German person who says we don't say the German things very well. And uh, he said, just wanted to say again that I love the podcast and looking forward to each episode. So, Alonzi, nerds. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Mike, we are ahead of you on that one. We are planning on a RPG or history of like board game kind of episode in the future. So no worries, guys. I would totally love to come on for that one, guys, because I spend most of my life playing RPGs and games that involve twelve-sided dice. Um, who are you? I'm sorry. I think that may be uh, Alan's cousin or something that just took me <laughs> over. Alan's cousin Roland. His name is Cedric. Cedric. <laughs> My name is Cedric. 
<laughs> we are witnessing magic in the making here, folks. A new character for Nerdonomy. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, well, we got some more difficulty back we have to read. So here's what, we, here's what it says. This is from Kevin. Uh, very disappointed in your Jack the Ripper episode. Well, he does not mince words, does he? Brian and Dave... I just wanted to say that I was very disappointed by this week's NOH episode on Jack the Ripper. I am a true crime nerd, and Jack the Ripper is the granddaddy of all murder mysteries. Unfortunately, it is also the one that has the most inaccurate information floating around about it. I was sad to hear you add to these inaccuracies. Uh, There are a few main things that are factually wrong that made me cringe. Uh, The first was hearing Dave mention that Elizabeth Stride's abdomen had been mutilated, just not to the extent of the other victims. All the sources I have read indicate that uh, that is not true and that Liz Stride only had her throat cut, not nearly as deeply as the other victims either. And uh, her clothing was not disturbed. I was wondering what Dave's source was for this information. The second uh, and most cringeworthy was that there was no graffiti written in blood above the body of Catherine Eddowes. There was anti-Semitic graffiti found written in chalk in an entryway on Golston Street, about a 15-minute walk from Mitre Square nearby a bloody piece of Catherine Eddowes' apron. However, it is questionable as to whether or not this was written by the killer or if it was a random graffiti that happened to be near where the killer had discarded the apron. The third and more minor, the From Hell letter was not sent to a detective slash inspector. It was sent to a local uh, vigilance committee, like a neighborhood watch, leader named George Lusk. And Mr. Lusk was not mentioned in the Dear Boss or Saucy Jack letters. These were the main factual inaccuracies I noticed so far, Sadly, I still have 20 minutes of podcasts left. Uh, I don't expect a one-off podcast episode to solve this mystery, but it would be nice if the information presented was factually accurate. And then he gave a couple recommendations of resources that uh, you can look it up, which we will post in our show notes when those get posted. Now, Uh, I imagine Dave has something to say about that. He did. Dave read the feedback, and uh, let me read his statement. Uh, Dear Kevin, thank you for writing in. I must first state that I am terribly sorry to have disappointed you, a listener. It was my duty to provide entertainment and correct facts, and it seems that I was not able to deliver on either. Well, hang on a second. I think the episode was plenty entertaining, but we'll we'll move forward in just a second. You are correct. I misinformed the audience about Stride's abdomen being touched. It was not. Secondly, I was also wrong about the graffiti written in blood. However, I did correctly uh, state himself about Lusk. He did correct himself about Lusk. The letters were not sent to the police, but to George Lusk, who was the head of the Vigilante Committee. Thank you for your honest feedback. Cheers, Dave. Uh, let me comment on this real quick, too. Uh, let me uh, make my apology. Yeah, we always strive to make our content accurate, and sometimes the facts slip through the cracks. So, Kevin, I also want to own that and apologize. Um, I do want to back up Dave, though, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, he it was an honest mistake. He had misread some of the information that he had researched. His research actually did coincide with the things you were saying. He just misread them when he was on the air. So, fully, honestly misunderstanding. Uh, The third one, though, he is correct. Uh, We did state in the episode that George Lusk was, in fact, not a police inspector, but the member of the Neighborhood Watch, the Vigilante Committee. So, um, you know, I hate to correct you back, but that was something we did address in the episode. I'm actually kind of glad we got this piece of feedback because we get so much positive feedback. I encourage people to be honest and critical of our podcast because we've never ever advertised ourselves as an academic podcast. We we talk about history because it's fun and it's important to know about. And it's stuff like this that make the podcast better. So, Kevin, thank you for writing that. All right. Well, after hearing that, this being my first uh, Nerds on History and me having a lot of the content, I am scared beyond all human belief. Uh, but uh, let's move forward. You can't, um, you, you, got... didn't, you can't see it, folks. 
I'm pretty sure I heard sound of, of duty being made in his pants. Yeah. So. It was quite loud here, so I'm not surprised you heard it there. Next piece of feedback Awkward. is from Dino. Dino, one of our regular listeners and gives us regular feedback. Uh, his subject line is, who shot EB? And he says, first off, even though you have been on the last few Nerds on Film episodes, David, it's good to hear your voice again. So we just listened to the Jack the Ripper episode, and it was phenomenal, and I'm not going to lie, I'm a bit jumpy at times, but listening to that episode on my way home at night in darkish areas did give me the goosebumps. But I wouldn't have it any other way. I cannot wait to hear the rest of the mystery episodes, and I don't know if yous... I love how he always says yous. <laughs> like Rocky. <laughs> I don't know if yous watch this show, but listening to yous talk about Jack's killing reminds me of the following on Fox. I kind of went into... Uh, John Travolta a little bit. Yeah. No, I was like John Travolta and Rocky and Christopher Walken all made some awkward baby. So, uh... Talk About Jack's Killing reminded me of the following on Fox. It's an amazing show, very graphic for cable. However, they kill people in ways that Edgar Allan Poe wrote about. Yes, not Jack the Ripper, but it's still gruesome killings, and it's really good. I highly recommend it. Season one is on Netflix, so check it out. I mean, there's a reason why they call Poe the master of the macabre. He was the, one of the first major writers to really, yeah. to really go there and to mention, to talk about gore like that. So there's a reason why he's inspired these kind of works as you have them now. Yeah, well, Dino, we we are glad that we scared the crap out of you uh, in your car uh, because I'm, I'm glad you found the episode entertaining. We, we'll just leave it at that. Um, our last piece of feedback comes from Dave, who has uh, come to us before, who uh, I have to apologize because uh, he says here, Gents, I'm not really English. I'm from Ohio and I live in Georgia. I am a bit of an Anglophile and I have had the fortune of spending a lot of time in the UK as well as lived in Spain, Italy, and Greece where I hung out in the expat community so much of it has worn off. This week's Audible history book for me is The Great Republic by Sir Winston Churchill and uh, read by his grandson, Winston S. Churchill. It's the history of the, the U.S. Uh, that is told from the Anglo-European perspective and by a maker of history. Very cool. And he I, gives us the link. Yeah, that's. I think that's also the first time that a piece of our feedback has already taken care of our audible.com ad. Yeah, right. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> Though yeah. I think we'll, I think we'll have to do one. Still, we, we, the mid rolls are fun because we make a whole little skit out of it, and you know we'll make it work. What we'll are you talking it. about? There are no skits. It's all real. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. I don't know what came over me, Sean. I don't spend hours, day in, day out, putting sound effects just to make everybody know that it's just it's fake. <laughs> Everything you hear in this podcast really happens. Eric is in a coma. Everything. Yes. Cool. So thank you guys for your feedback. And you know what? Let's let's uh, move on to the topic, shall we? So we've been talking about last week we did Jack the Ripper because that is probably one of the, the greatest, if not the greatest, unsolved mysteries. Yes, and we decided it's Mystery March. Exactly. Which is coming from listener feedback. We had been suggested to do an episode of Unsolved Mysteries and... Uh, the very episode tonight we're doing came from listener feedback, uh, which was to talk about the only time in American history where someone has gotten away with committing air piracy. And uh, that is the famous story, or the infamous story, I should say, of Mr. D.B. Cooper, as the alias yes. goes. Crazy. It's it, This is like, you read just the general summary of this, and this is something that should be a movie. It is so cinematic and so almost, he's almost like a swashbuckler with the way... Yeah this gets executed um, he's more it's kind of like a swashbuckler but a swashbuckler has more action and and, a, and like a swashbuckling pirate was more violent 
And it's interesting that he was very calm and not abusive to anybody when he took the plane over. And he was very, it was almost like if James Bond was a criminal who right. knew nothing about parachutes. No, t- totally, <laughs> totally. Yeah. And, and I do not mean to make a hero out of a criminal at all. Not at all. I mean, it's really screwed up that he took a plane hostage. Yeah. Um, but the execution you hear about it is the stuff that you see done in later movies. You know, you hear about these people wanting, saying, I want a plane that takes me to this, and I want this much money. And you hear about federal agencies, you know, trying to bend to these uh, demands that are made. And this really kind of set that template, I think. It did. Like, it was, no one had seen anything like this before. And uh, even afterwards, I mean, it it spawned uh, 31 hijackings in U.S. airspace in 1972, the year after, most of which, or no, I'm sorry, Half of which people tried to extort money and ask for parachutes in the same way that D.B. Cooper did. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So um, basically one guy gets away with it and everyone else thinks they can get away with it. Well, there's a problem with that, folks. Just because one guy gets away with it, usually law enforcement learns from that situation and adapts so that you don't. They're like the Borg, you know. Uh, (laughs) They they adapt to whatever weakness was there so that they cannot be exploited yet again. Why don't we dial back for a second and talk about what actually happened? first because i think the play-by-play of the event is going to really help us understand what happened afterwards and why this is such a mysterious case to begin with so first of all let's get this out of the way um the person who hijacked the plane's name that he gave for his ticket was actually dan cooper the name db cooper was the name of one of the early suspects yeah you're right uh early on when they were investigating it they had found a suspect who was living in the oregon area uh, named D.B. Cooper, but he was eliminated almost immediately from the investigation. And yeah. yet, because the guy who was writing the article about it went to print too soon, Dan Cooper and D.B. Cooper became one and the same. It's one of the. It's a huge misnomer, but it is stuck. It's just stuck. It shows you how powerful the media can be. It's yep. also more convenient to remember the first time than it is to remember the correction, right? First yeah. impressions are very, very powerful. Indeed. Uh, so anyway, so we have this guy who buys a ticket on a pretty much a commuter plane, right? Yeah, going, it's a Boeing going, 727, Northwest Orient Flight 305. Right, so he's going from, from Seattle. It was a Seattle to, to Portland, Oregon flight. It was a very short flight. It was only yeah. like a half hour. So he boards the plane, lights up a cigarette, and he orders a bourbon and soda. And then not too long after that, he passes a note to the flight attendant, whose name was uh, Florence Schaffner. And uh, she, at first, didn't think anything of it. She was like, oh, he's probably passing me his phone number or something. So she doesn't look at it. And he says, oh, no, ma'am, you're going to want to take a look at that. Basically, the note says that he has a bomb uh, that's in his attache case he was carrying with him. She kind of doesn't believe him. He opens it up a little bit. And uh, I can't remember whether there was actually a bomb in there or whether there were red cylinders to make it look like there were a bomb in there. But either way, they start taking it seriously. She's ordered to bring that note up to the pilot. And then the pilot immediately lets air traffic control know uh, so that, uh, you know, everybody can get everything ready. Um, His demands were $200,000 in, quote, negotiable American currency, four parachutes, two primary and two reserve. And he wanted a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the plane once it arrived. Right. Again, yeah. the standard movie fare that what you would get from a, from yeah. a hostage situation. So Donald Nyrup, who is the president of Northwest Airlines at this time, uh, authorized the payment of the ransom and told all the employees to just cooperate with whatever Cooper wanted him to do. 
So the aircraft had to circle the Puget Sound for about two hours to give Seattle police and FBI time to get the ransom money, the parachutes, and to get any emergency personnel onto the tarmac in case anybody was injured or anything because they had no idea. So while they're circling around, it's, it's, it's interesting to note that Cooper seemed pretty familiar with the area and noticed, hey, isn't that Tacoma down there? And noticed that also... Uh, McCord Air Force Base was only 20 minute drive from the airport. He noted that, which will come into play later on. I just wanted to note that so that it helps our uh, case along here. Like I said before, according to another flight attendant, he was never nasty to any of them. He was never mean. He didn't physically harm anybody. And he even paid for his bourbon and sodas and tipped on top of it. So can we can we take this back for a second? So first of all, he requires negotiable American currency. So we, we, we probably should specify what that means, right? Negotiable American currency is, uh, according to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection uh, Agency, any monetary instruments uh, that basically are coins or currency from the U.S., travelers' checks, checks, promissory notes, or money orders that can be cashed by the bearer, and securities or stocks in bearer form like a, in other words like a stock certificate something in other words that's true that's the uh that's the hard definition of it but yeah. uh the reason that so many people note that he said i want negotiable american currency is because that isn't something an american citizen would normally say which lends to some of the theories that he could be canadian but we'll get to all that the theories and the suspects later absolutely i just wanted to paint the picture and i also wanted to mention that the plane had to to fly around Puget Sound before it could land, I immediately thought about Die Hard 2. Die yeah, Harder, right? <laughs> right? Because I'm pretty sure that they borrowed that exact plot point from the D.B. Cooper story. Yeah. So, okay, just wanted to, show, again, show the cultural impact of what's going on here. Continue. So, so FBI agents uh, get a hold of all the money from a bunch of different Seattle area banks, and then uh, they made sure that they took uh, microfilm photographs. For any of you out there who don't uh, know what microfilm is, Brian, why don't you elaborate on that? <laughs> so for those who don't know what microfilm is, it's really freaking old by our standards. Microfilm is just basically scans of usually, usually it's for newspapers nowadays, but it, this could have been anything at this point. That's kept in literally just very, very small pieces of film that are loaded into a, uh, a screen that magnifies the image uh, that would look not unlike a computer terminal with a very large screen nowadays and view this stuff. And Sean, I'm ashamed you don't know what microfilm is because it's in one of your favorite movies of all time i know i know no i know what microfilm is but i thought that you would be more eloquent in telling everybody what microfilm is okay Rather fine than me going uh uh you uh you remember the rock where at the <laughs> end there's that thing that's in the pew at the church did yeah, that's microfilm that's how i would have described it yeah or, or how about the scene in batman where robert wool is talking to vicky vale i know and going <laughs> through the microfilm and, and there was microfilm and there was microfiche and they were pretty similar okay so uh cooper makes the pilot taxi the plane to a very well lit but isolated part of the tarmac and then makes the pilot turn off all of the lights so that he can't get hit by snipers which shows how how well he planned it so because he knew a sniper could get him immediately so this dude Which, had a plan he knew yeah, exactly he was a plan he yeah, investigators said investigators said from the beginning after the hijacking that he was a very shrewd and he was a very careful planner yeah, and he also never intended to hurt anybody on the plane. In fact, he was totally okay with them being taken off the plane. Yeah, like, he had everybody left the plane except for the pilot, the co-pilot, and I believe one flight attendant. And so anyway, the story continues on from here. They basically say, well, I, we need to fly to Reno from here. In well, the yeah, no, he says, I want to go to Mexico City, but he wants him to fly at a lower altitude 
at a much slower speed and with um with the aft stair kind of engaged already, right? Right. Yeah, and so the pilots tell them because of those conditions, you're gonna have to refuel in Reno. So that's why they they reroute to Reno. Right. Right. But when they get off that plane, he basically says everybody who is on the crew must stay in the cockpit, lock it, and stay in there until they land. And basically, halfway through the flight, or part partway through the flight, they feel a sudden uh, weight change in the cabin. Yeah, the uh, the tail end kind of lifts up, and, and it was scary enough that they actually had to do some expert aviation work to level the plane back out. Right. And then when they land in Reno, as it turns out, Cooper is totally missing from the cabin, uh, as well as, of course, as the money and the parachutes, at least at first. So fairly expertly executed robbery and escape plan, really. He he totally made his getaway, and we've never found him since. What's interesting about that is, so uh, the theory is that he used one of the parachutes, strapped it on himself, and just kind of very, again, very swashbuckler-like, just kind of jumped out and deployed his air his parachute and just kind of landed somewhere in the middle of nowhere to make yeah. his getaway. Yeah. Um, they they say that- he cut one of the parachutes... Um, to take the strings from the parachute to wrap the money around his body. Um, and one of the notable things was that he took uh, the wrong reserve parachute. They accidentally gave him one that was uh, for a skydiving school that was not functional. And so if his first shoot didn't work, there's a good chance that he he's dead. Oops. So, so in other words, it, w- there's a couple of potential outcomes here. And we'll never really know the, the outcome based off of the evidence we have right now. Either he was given a, a faulty parachute and it didn't deploy and he fell to his death. Which actually is what the FBI is the most vocal about. They think that's their best bet. And I think it's pretty convenient. I think it's a way for them to kind of say, you know, we didn't really get our man, but we know he didn't get away because it's most likely that he died. But if that's the case, where's the money? And that's, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a little bit. There's also a theory that if his aft, if the aft stair was open, that means a part of the plane was was exposed throughout the entire flight basically there was a door left open while they were flying uh-huh yeah so who's to say that a change in in altitude or a slight bump didn't like make him tumble backwards and fall out of the whole plane to begin with you know yeah well um if if you understand what an aft stare is if you've seen the animation of it the aft stare it kind of opens up from the back near the bottom in the center so the reason he chose a 727 and the reason is because of that aft stare and how you could jump out and not be in danger of being killed by the jet stream. So in other words, the the door that's in the middle of the cabin, that's the exit row door, the one that's kind nope. of... Nope. No? No. Okay, sorry. Yeah. I, I, got, I got it wrong. I see what you're saying. There's an exit that's basically built into the back of the cabin of the plane. It's very, pretty much not like the kind of hatch that would open on a, on a ma- massive cargo plane or on exactly. like a military plane. Yeah, and which is funny because they that's one of the reasons they think Cooper might have been in the military is because they actually did use Boeing 727s in the Vietnam War to drop uh, special agents clandestinely because you could use that stair and the staircase could be open during flight. It freaked the whole crew out when he d- demanded that that be extended. It wasn't exactly open when he locked everybody in the cockpit, but he demanded that it was extended. And uh, they, even the crew wasn't even aware that you could fly under those conditions with them open. So only the government and only the military knew that that was possible in that plane and the Boeing Corporation itself. Interesting. Well, that's a pretty strong piece of evidence then to suggest that he was there. But if that's the case, then he would have had to have been operating under a pseudonym. Because if this is the FBI we're talking about, they would have naturally 
Oh, done yeah. An, done an inquiry of anybody who had the names like Cooper or who would have been paratroopers uh, at any point in time within the last yeah. 20 years before that happening. Yeah. And another piece of evidence uh, that that would corroborate that he might have been in the military was that, you know, like I said before, he knew exactly where that Air Force base was in relation to where they were in the air. Okay. All right, so after this all happens, they start the investigation, and they try to recreate um, the exact conditions under which the hijacking took place. So they get the exact same pilot, the exact same plane, except they get a 200-pound sled that they're going to drop out of the staircase at the exact same time that they felt the, um, the tail portion go up very quickly. Gotcha, and I'm assuming they were doing 200 pounds just to kind of get a rough estimate of, of Cooper's weight. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. There's also so many different variables um, because they, they're, of course, they're trying to figure out where his landing zone was because if he did die, then that would end the case quickly. So they did all this in the reenactment, and then um, later on they found out that William Scott, the pilot, had initially um, miscalculated his flight path because he had to fly the plane manually because of all the crazy demands that Cooper had about how he flew with the at, with the aft staircase extended and with um, the landing gear down and having to fly so slow and so low that it turns out he was a little bit off. So there's some debate at the time about where the actual landing zone was. And uh, there's another variable. Um, they have no idea how long he waited in free fall before he pulled his ripcord, which has, a, I mean, anybody who's ever skydived or knows like the difference of where you're landing based on how long you wait to pull your ripcord it's it's pretty significant. Right, because the higher up you pull the cord, if I'm not mistaken, you could end up increasing the range that you fall in quite dramatically. It was in the black of night. So honestly, anybody who's a seasoned skydiver or paratrooper says that doing it in those conditions, that that when it's that dark, it was really, really risky. Like not a, a normal paratrooper or a skydiver would not have done that. Okay, so then that kind of speaks against the military theory because if he had that military training, he wouldn't have tried something. Well, no, he could so have risky. been in the military, but they know that based on the profile they've built so far, they don't think that he had any advanced paratrooper um, or skydiving experience whatsoever because of the the poor. Between the two main shoots that he picked, he picked the more inferior and older one, and he picked a non-functional reserve shoot that was labeled non-functional and was actually sewn up. Anybody that was a skydiver would have known to look and check to see if the shoot would actually deploy. Gotcha. But they didn't, you know, they never found a body. And like you said, they never um, found all of the money, you know. I mean, later on, we'll talk about pieces of the money that were found uh, much later on. But before they they figured out that they had their calculations wrong, they searched the crap out of the area near uh, Lake Merwin. I mean, they brought out Army, Air Force, National Guard, and civilian volunteers to do a ground search for 18 days. They searched with helicopters. They did door-to-door searches of all the houses in the area. They even put a, a submarine, a company put a submarine in Lake Merwin to search the entire thing to see if there was any evidence. And nothing, not one significant piece of material evidence was found. And then from that point on, of course, when they found out that the uh, flight path was miscalculated, then they did some more searching. Right. Well, just to think about the sheer embarrassment that must have been on the federal government, you've got several agencies of two branches of the military, uh, National Guard from whatever, from the, I'm assuming it would have been in uh, Washington, and you've got the FBI, three federal agencies and one statewide agency who can't turn up anything. Yeah. Uh, it's like this huge 
search that ends up just completely fruitless. And Yeah, I know. They spent so much money in this one area that turned out to not even be where he landed. And then, of course, by this time that they figured all this out, anybody who knows anything about investigating a crime, every day means so much. And the crime and like the, the trail's pretty much gone cold. So, best way to try to catch him now is to try to find the money. Right. And as we said before, the FBI had a microfilm copy of every single serial number that were on these bills. So, in other words, if they were to be used in any in any bank, they would have been able to be traced. Once it did hit a bank, then they have a better idea that it's close by where he might be. Right. So, in other words, and he might also, like, he wouldn't want to go to a casino either. You wouldn't want to go to any place with this money where they take the handling of the money very, very seriously. So, um, which is funny because the first knowing that he's a shrewd planner and that he was very, very careful, I find it very funny that in 1971, the first thing the FBI does is only release those serial numbers to banks, law enforcement, casinos, racetracks, and places like that all around the world. I've and if got, you know he's that great of a planner, he's not gonna bring the money to any of those places. I've got a theory, he My- had syphilis. <laughs> No, no. He he made his way to uh, a gaming casino that was authorized by under tribal law, and he lost all of the money playing blackjack. Yeah, that's possible. Also completely right. unable to be proven. Let's log that. Hey, we, but you know what? It could end up on the History Channel, and they could do a whole hour about it, because they don't need many facts these days for certain things on that network. Nope. In the uh, realm of Pawn Stars and, uh, <laughs> you know, what are you, you going to do? Ancient Aliens. Ancient Aliens, sure. Right, they did a whole special on mermaids that was complete nonsense. There's a new one I want to do where it surmises that aliens did build the pyramids, but that Bigfoot was the aliens. The aliens were big feet. So in other words, Sasquatch is in fact an extraterrestrial race of beings who built the pyramids and have uh-huh. evaded human contact for the yes, entire Yes, that day. would explain why it was built faster and how huge pieces of stone like that were moved because they're giant beast people. With ten times the strength of a man. When Eric hears this episode, he is either going to laugh or he's going to have a stroke. If he ever wakes up and gets to hear anything again. Well, you know what? I'm optimistic. All right, Brian, keep lying to yourself. Anyway, so they're searching for the money and they're not finding any of it. Nothing's popping up. In 1972... The attorney general named John Mitchell released the serial numbers to the general public. I mean, once they had only released it to certain agencies and to the banks and the casinos and nothing turned up, they said, well, let's release them to the general public, which, you know, is not a bad idea. More people see the numbers, more people know about it. You might be able to track down a bill and actually find this guy. But it turned out in 1972, two guys used counterfeit $20 bills that they printed with the serial numbers to get $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter in exchange for an interview with the man that they claimed was actually Cooper. That didn't work out. (laughs) So they... (laughs) Yeah, basically from this point forward, people are just offering ridiculous amounts of money for any, like, one bill with a serial number on it. And it's now up to, what, $5,000 reward if you can find one of these... These Cooper-based twenty-dollar bills. Yeah, that's what that's what a, a newspaper in Seattle offered, and um, the the Oregon Journal published the serial numbers and offered a thousand dollars to the first person to turn in a bill to them or their nearest FBI field office. Well, that would be really challenging because I mean, we don't see many of those types of twenty-dollar bills in circulation much anymore. They've had the twenty-dollar bill revised what two or three times in the last decade alone. Yeah, you know, um, and this is almost forty years. 
before. And I think they didn't start revising the 20s until like the late 90s. So uh, that being said, coming across these 20s of that print style, very rare in and of itself. But then again, to even find ones with those matching serial numbers on it is going to even be more difficult to find. Plus, you also have to factor into that the common man is not paying attention to the serial number that, of the money that they're dealing with. They're just... No. So, at this point, it's, it's almost moot. It's like, it's, it's, yeah. it's going to be almost impossible to find. Exactly. And that's what it was. It was impossible to find. Nobody was using the money, obviously, because none of it went through any banks. So, it took until 1978 before really any breaks in the case happened again. And in 1978, a placard with the instructions for lowering the aft staircase of a 727 was found by a deer hunter near a logging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, which is well north of Lake Merwin, which was that original area that they thought he dropped. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so that was the first piece of evidence that they found. Now, wait, wait, hang honestly... on, hang on, hang on, John. Sorry, the temporal rift started opening again. Sorry, man. Let's just let this get through. I'm hoping it's someone from history I hate because I want to punch him in the face. I what? I I don't. He's got a gun, Brian. Yeah, I'm kind of kind of nervous. Hey, uh, y'all. My name's Billy the Kid. Oh my God, Billy the Kid. Y'all want to play some poker? Uh, I got a couple <laughs> rules. What I win, I keep. What you win, I keep. Sounds like a plan, Mister the Kid. By the way, I don't know what this uh, fancy box contraption that I just wrote here in on, but it was very colorful. What exactly am I here to do? Uh, <laughs> your guess is as good as mine, but um, I think there was a piece of paper in that box that you can you can read out. That box right there? Yes, sir. Okay, that's a very inventive use of a six-shooter. Uh, Why, thank they, you. Didn't know that could be used as a prehensile tool. So. I use it for most things. I do. Sometimes I cut my nails with it. You have to be really, really accurate. Well... Your nails yes. look immaculate. So you want me to read this piece of paper right here in this box? Yes, sir. All right, hold on. Do you enjoy reading books? Neither do we. We like listening to them. You can listen to all sorts of books on audible.com. You can find books about much anything on audible.com. You can find books about me, the greatest gunfighter in the West, though I would argue the North, the South, and the East as well. Um, and, uh, I think that's it. I think that's all I need to, to read. Now I'm going to go back to my time and, uh, tomorrow is my 21st birthday and I'm real excited. Well, all right. Bye, Mr. The Kid. Hope you make it to 22. This damn door won't open. You think we should tell him what happened at Fort Sumner? There it goes. I, I don't think we should tell him. Well, gosh. <clears throat> I think that was the one that we were in the most danger of dying during. Yeah, it's yeah, true. Napoleon's donkey wasn't going to hurt anybody. Yeah, I, I, was and I don't think Salvador Dali knew where he was. <laughs> I definitely don't think he knew uh, where he was or who he was at that moment. They are right, folks. Uh, that audible.com page we have is pretty awesome. Uh, you can sign up for a 30-day free trial. And if you do, even if you just don't go for the full membership, Neuronomy will get a small commission. You can do that by going to neuronomy.com. And clicking on our sidebar, the little Audible link that's on that page, and you will help us out. Awesome. Uh, that, so where were we? Where? Yeah, that's a great yeah, question. Yeah, we were talking about the placard that was found that had yeah. the instructions on how to open the back stairs of the 727. Right. You said it was found about uh, 13 miles east of Castle Rock. Yes. Uh, and which was well north of the Lake Merwin. Uh, yes. Suspected landing zone. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is seven years later, but now they have a more definite landing area, even though he could not have landed there, too. That placard could have. I mean, I, I've I've skydived myself. And I know that if you had a placard in your pocket and you were jumping out in a suit like he was, that could have flown out at any time and could have taken a long time and given hit with wind and fallen anywhere. But it gives them a better rough estimate. Sure. Fair enough. So after that, two years later, an eight-year-old boy named Brian was uh, on vacation with his family on the Columbia River, which is about 20 miles southwest of Ariel, Washington. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash. It was very disintegrated, but it was still packed in the rubber bands. There were three packs, I believe, um, which had hundred, $120 bills, but one of them was missing 10 bills. And it's kind of interesting because they were trying to speculate, well, how could this have happened? And a group of Army Corps engineers uh, and hydrologists uh, developed a, a free-floating theory uh, that maintained that because the bills disintegrated... <laughs> In a, in a rounded fashion and that were matted together, that they had to have been deposited by river action. They couldn't have been buried on purpose, which if, if that's true, then that meant that Cooper would not have landed near Lake, Lake Merwin at all or in any part of the Lewis River. It, and that also strengthens the theory that uh, he landed near the Washougal River. Yes, yes. But the hypothesis that they had still had problems because if it did free float, um, it didn't explain why there were missing bills. Like I said, there were 10 missing bills. So, right. yeah. And there's no logical reason that those three packets would have stayed together after being separated from the rest of the ransom money if it, if it did float down. So they're still not sure whether it was buried there in the riverbank or whether it floated down. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that does raise a couple of important questions. And it's not likely that Cooper would have actually taken $200 out of one of these no, packets. No, and there's some other wild theories too. I didn't put them down in my notes, but I remember that there was there's another theory that a wild animal or another person could have found those three things of bills and moved them and then buried them for some odd reason. Yeah, that seems kind of unlikely unless you're a dog of some kind. I know, I know, but I mean, at this point, they're probably so desperate. They're just trying to think of anything. It was aliens. Aliens sucked the money up. <laughs> into their spaceship and then they dropped it back down in a different area or maybe maybe he contracted syphilis uh yeah <laughs> he was from a bear Cooper was syphilitic and just mad and just put the money in the riverbank because he didn't know what the hell he was doing <laughs> there you go so i mean from that point forward there's an ongoing investigation there's a bunch of suspects that are named and then ruled out we'll get to the suspects later but it wasn't really until about 2007 that uh, newer technology allowed them to announce that they could get a partial DNA profile off of three organic samples that they found on the clip-on tie that Cooper was wearing. Right. Uh, and up until this point in, in 2007, no one had heard about certain information. They released a bunch of information that they hadn't made public yet. And so they showed everybody the plane ticket, uh, which cost $20, by the way, back then. Um, wow. And information about the parachutes, like I said before, the, the fact that he picked the most inferior of the two parachutes and a non-functional reserve, they had withheld that information waiting to see if um, anybody, because in the years before that, people were claiming that they were Cooper just for the fame. And so when they interrogated them, they asked them all these questions and they used the evidence that they had withheld to see whether they were telling the truth. But by 2007, they're like, whatever, let's just release this information. 
And then um, in 2009, the FBI announced that uh, a paleontologist from the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture, which is in Seattle, um, his name is Tom Kay. Right. He put together a whole Cooper research team to use technology that wasn't available in the time to try to find out more details about Cooper. Right. And it's at that point that they found a piece of pure titanium on Cooper's tie clip. Yeah. And titanium, which was, by the way, extremely rare in the 1970s, um, and it would have only been found at that point in time in metal fabrication or production facilities or chemical companies. And that is pretty important because that now gives them a direction to go in. That leads us to think that Cooper would have had to have been some form of uh, chemical engineer of some kind. Yeah, a have... chemist or a metallurgist or, or worked in a facility uh, that, you know, processed metal or chemicals. And if it was on his tie clip, that would have meant he probably was working in a more managerial position too, right? So it, it's hard to say because we don't, we don't know what the conditions are like based off of the evidence we're seeing here. It could have been one of the situations where everyone was in ties and white coats, you know. And um, if that's the case, then, you know, very plausible. But uh, that he could have just been any position. But otherwise, you know, the management theory seems to hold yeah. some water. Yeah. And so uh, there's been tons of popular theories and speculation. And uh, I'm just going to give you some information that for the ongoing investigation, they know they're pretty sure the physical description is reliable. That's the one piece of evidence that they think is rock solid because they interviewed eyewitnesses in separate areas that were way far away from each other. Some that were in Reno when the plane landed and some that were still in um, Seattle. And they, they were very similar. So they think that the physical description is reliable. So that's what they're going off mostly when they're trying to find out who this guy was. They believe that he had to be well acquainted with this Seattle area and had to have been to the Air Force Base or been in the military at some point, knowing that the Air Force Base was that close, like I said before. Um, they, they believe that he was most likely in financial dire straits, um, but there are unpopular theories that, that he was just a guy who, you know, was a thrill seeker and he just wanted to prove that he could do it. He was like, ah, Hold I, on. you know, don't want to go skydiving, um, don't want to go bungee jumping. Let me just knock off a plane and see if that yeah. works out for me. There's a theory also that he uh, took the name Dan Cooper from a Belgian comic book series in the 70s that featured a Royal Canadian Air Force pilot with the name Dan Cooper. Uh, the, they were never released in the U.S. So this adds to the theory that he was in the military and may have had a tour of duty in Europe. Or they also released him in Canada. So he could have been Canadian, too. Again, supporting the, but, yeah, like you said, the I, yeah, Canadian but based on that piece of circumstantial speculation, like that he took his name from that. I mean, Dan Cooper is a pretty common name. It's just as it's just as believable that he just pulled that name out of thin air. It's true because it's two fairly common names, and that's the thing. Like, there's so much, so many different theories here, and so many different inconclusive evidence to support who this guy might be. That there's like there's no fewer than like what seven or ten suspects. Of who they think could have been Those Dan are Cooper. just the ones that are really notable. I mean, they had tons of suspects and tons of people that were claiming that they were Cooper just because they wanted the fame. But you want to get into the, the main suspects, the people who were actually legitimately investigated? I think that'd be All a good right. thing to do just briefly. Yeah, let's do that. So there were the, the main ones, there's, there's a lot of them, but I'm just going to talk about three of them. How's that? That's fine. The first big one was Kenneth Christensen. Uh, in 2003, his brother Lyle saw a documentary about D.B. Cooper on TV and was immediately convinced that his brother, who had passed away already, was D.B. Cooper. He was in the Army in 1944, and he was trained as a paratrooper. Now, that's one of the reasons they don't think that he was actually Cooper, because if he was a paratrooper, he would have known what shoots to choose. 
But there are a lot of other interesting circumstantial things here to talk about. He was 45 at the time of the hijacking, but he was shorter, lighter, and had a lighter complexion than the original description, which, you know, that's the most reliable piece of evidence that they had. Um, when he was dying in 1994 from cancer, he told his brother that he had a secret that he couldn't tell him, and his brother never pushed the issue, so he never found out what the secret was. After he died, they found a bunch of gold coins, a bunch of, uh, like, a huge collection of valuable stamps, and $200,000 in different bank accounts that they didn't know about. Wow. He also, this is the one thing that really led them to believe that he might be Cooper. He had a huge collection of news clippings about Northwest Orient Airlines because he had worked for them. And uh, the thing was, he had this huge collection of news clippings, which all stopped just before the hijacking, which is crazy because you got a guy who's collecting news clippings about the company he works for, except he doesn't collect any of the ones after the biggest event in the airline's history. Huh. Yeah. His brother tried convincing the FBI and Nora Ephron specifically that his brother was D.B. Cooper, tried to sell movie rights. And nobody really took it seriously until 2010 when a private investigator in New York heard the story from his brother and uh, decided to write a book about it. And that's kind of when the hype in 2010. So it's so funny that we're going to find out here that so much of this speculation is like a revival of the Cooper case's popularity. Yeah. People are really interested in it these days. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I think it's interesting that they tried contacting Nora Ephron because, like, what are you thinking of making a romantic comedy based yeah, on right. <laughs> a no air pirate? Uh, <laughs> she was a stewardess. He was a he was a terrorist. And, well, uh, there was the funny thing is there was a movie in 1981 called The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper starring Treat Williams and Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall was the insurance investigator trying to track him down. It wasn't very good as far as I remember. And I'm not sure if it was that popular. Yeah. But yeah, Nora Ephron would not be my choice for a, you know, a movie like this. I would choose... Probably like I would want David Fincher to make this movie. David Fincher, you know? sure, yeah, really sure. like sure. Or even I'll go off on a, uh, an offshoot here. Philip Noyce, who uh, did well, he did Dead Calm way yeah. ba- ba- back in the nineties. But oh yeah, but he That's did, uh, but he did you know all the the Harrison Ford Jack Ryan movies. Oh as yeah, well, as well as The Saint. Actually, yeah, The Saint. Not many. I know this isn't nerds on film, but if you people haven't checked out The Saint, movie based on an old TV show, way better than the TV show. And his last, his most recent movie that you would know of is that he did the. Salt. He did the yeah the Soviet sleeper spy movie, which was not bad. Angelina Jolie. It was not yeah. bad. Yeah. Okay. So Kenneth Christensen, um, the FBI ended up ruling him out because his appearance didn't match the eyewitness descriptions, and there was no hard evidence. Of course, I mean the trail had been so cold for so long. Uh, how could much hard evidence come up? And of sure. course, like I said before, his level of skydiving prowess was way above what they had put in their profile. Okay. So that's one of them. Who's mm-hmm. the next one? The next one I think I want to note is uh, Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. Now, he was an Army veteran. He did two tours of duty in Vietnam. He was the demolition expert, and then he was a helicopter pilot for the Green Berets. And after his service, he became a warrant officer for the Utah National Guard. He was an avid skydiver, which, again, goes against the profile. The reason that he's so important is because he hijacked a 727 on April 7th in 1972 from Denver, and rerouted it to San Francisco. He demanded four parachutes and $500,000, which was delivered to him in San Francisco. The plane went back into the air, and then he jumped somewhere over Provo, Utah. He left behind his instructions for executing the hijacking and fingerprints on a magazine he was reading. So he was an idiot. He left behind all this evidence. He was arrested only two days later with the cash on him. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 45 years in Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary. 
He escaped two years later, but they tracked him down in about three months, and he was killed in a shootout with the FBI in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Now, there was a 1991 book called D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, written by a parole officer named Bernie Rhodes and a former FBI agent named Russell Calame that pointed out that there were similarities in the hijackings and that McCoy's family claimed that the tie and tie clip Cooper left behind belonged to McCoy and that McCoy refused to confirm or deny that he was Cooper. But yet something doesn't fit here because he was only 29 years old. Yeah. So that didn't match the didn't profile. Match, yeah, he didn't match the profile. He didn't match the physical description. And um, he also, there's credible evidence that he was actually in Las Vegas on the day of the hijacking. So they just immediately ruled him out. Gotcha. But once again, you know, someone, a lot of people have made money off this just writing books about who they think based on circumstantial evidence that they've put together. Hey, so if anybody's out there and you, you want to write a book, just put together as much little circumstantial evidence as you can and you can have a D.B. Cooper book on the bestseller list. Yeah, well, makes sense, right? Because yet, as much as we know, there's also so much we don't know. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so who's the last one? Who's the last The last suspect? one is the one who has most recently been proposed to be Cooper. It's a guy named Lynn Doyle Cooper, which that's the first red flag for me. No, would, would anybody really, if he's that careful of a planner, would he really use his real last name on the ticket? Right. And, of course, this is back in the days before they actually checked your ID. You just gave him a name and you showed up. Exactly. That was it, yeah. So this guy, Lynn Doyle Cooper, was a Korean War veteran. Um, and his niece, Marla, said that he was a suspect in July of 2011. So way after the fact. Like I'm saying, a lot of these things are coming up. In recent history. That would be on the 40th anniversary. <laughs> or not yeah. anniversary, but that'd be 40 years after. That seems kind of weird that they would take that long. I know. It's crazy, right? His uh, niece Marla recalled that Lynn and another uncle were planning something very mischievous involving fancy walkie-talkies at her grandmother's house in Sister, Oregon, which was about 150 miles south of Portland. And this all happened the day before the hijacking, she says. Now... The uncle said that they were on a turkey hunting trip, which would place them in the woods nearby. The day of the hijacking, they come back from what they said was turkey hunting. And Lynn Cooper had a bloody stain on his shirt and an injury that he said he sustained in a car wreck. Huh. And he was also never a skydiver or a paratrooper, which is consistent with the uh, with D.B. Cooper's awful choice of parachutes. So, in other words, he may have chosen a bad parachute the one that may have stopped functioning and he may have gotten injured upon landing yeah i know and the, the, the weird thing is though i looked at a picture taken of him from the 70s and he looks remarkably like the composite sketch but yeah, yeah well, and yet why was he ruled out because of the the like well okay so he he was ruled out because the dna actually he's not completely ruled out the fbi has actually refused to remark on it at all. So he could still be part of the ongoing investigation. This is why I think this one's the most interesting. It is the most recent, so he could just have not been ruled out yet. But as far as we know, he is still a viable suspect. Because um, he died in 1999, so they couldn't get any fingerprints from him. They tried to get some off of a uh, guitar strap that he made, but they couldn't get any. Um, and his DNA didn't match the tie. But with a lot of other suspects in recent years, they've tried to match the DNA but um, the FBI has conceded that they're not sure if the DNA taken off the tie is actually Cooper's. There's actually no way to even prove that that was his DNA. Right. So he still could be. Well, That's the guy who I think is the best possible. So, like, that is the guy who I think if they solve this mystery, it's going to end up being him. Well, I mean, there is one other thing you haven't mentioned. That the fact that this guy was obsessed with the comic book character you're talking about, Dan Cooper. That's why I'm saying this guy, if it's anybody, it's this guy. Okay. 
<clears throat> in which case, again, the mystery will never be solved because he's dead. So most of them are dead. All of all the suspects that we talked about, there's only a couple that are still alive, but they were ruled out nearly immediately, and they were early suspects. Right. I mean, it's such a fascinating story, and what I think is more interesting is to talk about well, how has that changed air travel since then? I mean, um, yeah, honestly, the FAA made regulations that we still see today that were unheard of and actually were argued unconstitutional at the time, which is searching baggage and searching passengers. Right, because of the bomb. And, I mean, there were 31 hijackings in U.S. airspace in 1972. Yeah, we mentioned that, yeah. You said that, right? You said 19 of them were for extorting money, and 15 of those, the hijackers requested uh, parachutes. And you're right. It's because of those, that odd pattern that was formed because everyone thought they could get away with it, that the FEA had to start to change the rules of the game. It's also interesting is that in 1972 made a ruling that said that 727 aircrafts had to be fitted with the Cooper vane. Yeah, exactly. Which was a device that would not allow the aft stair to be lowered during flight. Yes, but but you know what? Apparently it was pretty expensive because most of the airlines that had 727s decided to just weld it up and not use it they're like no we'll just weld the door shut and not use it at all there you go the guy uh, earl costi the guy who provided the parachutes for cooper during the hijacking he said it was yeah. found murdered in his home in april of just last year yes and there's no link to it but there's a ton of conspiracy theorists out there that are they're doing their best to link his murder to the coop that like saying that db cooper must have murdered him Which doesn't make any sense because he had no contact with Cooper. All he did was talk to some police officers or some FBI agents who came to his door and were like, we need parachutes because you're close by. Right. And it seems kind of just really bad luck. And beside that, like, what other information could he possibly have had that would have been enough for the Cooper person to actually have killed him? Yeah. It doesn't seem to match up. And the one thing I enjoy about the theory about Lynn Cooper, his niece said that him and another uncle were planning it. And before that, at no point did I read anything that said that he had any accomplices. He did this all by himself. But, I mean, wouldn't it be way easier to have somebody else waiting for you somewhere in the forest with a walkie-talkie, like Marla was saying? Yeah, To exactly. help you out? Yeah, I mean, the, no other theories before this where I was I hearing that anybody but him had anything to do with it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that one seems to make the, a lot more sense. Um, what I do find kind of weird, though, is that in, in Ariel, Washington... They have Cooper Day as yeah. an event bef- uh, of the weekend after Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah, they do a bunch of promotions at like restaurants and bowling alleys and stuff. That's kind of an odd way of celebrating. Come down it. for the Cooper Burger. Every burger comes with a bundle of $20 bills. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's so, so. <laughs> it's ob- bacon, lettuce, cheddar cheese, and a bundle of $20 bills <laughs> on the burger. Actually, they don't talk like that in the Pacific Northwest. I don't know. I, the, they really don't. Billy the Kid had a profound effect on the way I'm talking right now. Perhaps he did. He was just that charismatic of a character. Yeah, I mean, that one, that one just stands out as the weirdest thing that's happened. Because, first of all, it's already after Thanksgiving. You're mostly thinking about starting your, your Christmas shopping. It's like Black yeah. Friday and then Cooper Day. It seems kind of weird. But Yeah, why not? The weekend after, it's the Cooper sale. <laughs> right. And uh, just, hey. If you bring in a parachute, you get 50% off. And if you pay with a stack of 20s, you'll be arrested. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So it's but it's crazy yeah. with the effect that he's had on popular culture. There's been songs, books. He's he's been mentioned in so many TV shows. The stories inspired episodes of TV shows. It's crazy the effect that this case has had on American culture. 
And again, another chapter is closed in an unsolved mystery. And so, you know what, folks? I'm actually very interested in knowing what you guys want to share about the case. Um, if you are from the Washington area in Ariel, I would love to know what kind of traditions are, are based around this. I'd like to just, it just sounds so obscure to me, though. Just, I'd, lo- I'd love to learn more about it. And let's keep the conversation going, you know. I think it would be sweet if they organized like a giant mass skydiving and everybody was wearing black suits and they had a cigarette and a bourbon and soda. And <laughs> whoever had the most bourbon and soda left in their glass when they hit the ground and was the closest to where they think Cooper landed gets, I don't know, what are they like in the Pacific Northwest? Gets a log of Tillamook cheese. Really, Sean? <laughs> really? I mean, come on. But I actually think I want to add to the challenge, though. I think they should also strap a bunch of fake money to their waist and yeah, like, have right. it taped in just to see if the weight differential makes a difference. On top of that, uh, please, you can follow us on our social media, of course, at Nerdonomy on Twitter and on our Facebook page. And follow us on our personal accounts. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I am at Big Sean Mo. That's S-E-A-N. Yes. And uh, also, if you want to follow Mr. Brickmont while as he struggles to recuperate from his coma and yet somehow doesn't lost use of his thumbs or abstract thought you can follow him on twitter at the brickmont yes you can also if uh, you have it in your heart and your wallet we would love a donation we are currently a user supported podcast we have the ads but you know what we're still getting most of our support from you guys you can go to our homepage and click on that donate button and uh, help a good cause i would like to propose this as well i was thinking about this the other day If you're an uber nerd, and let's say you have two copies of a really expensive comic book, and you don't have any cash on you, or if you have some, you know, X-Men cards or something, if you want to donate something valuable to us and mail it to us so we can sell it for the money, because you don't have any liquid cash, we will also accept that, and we will decide whether to A, keep it, because we're nerds, or B, sell it so we can get some new fancy things going on here at Nerdonomy. Yeah, that's um, definitely an unusual request. Um, I will also accept human fingers. Um, I I get boxes of toenail clippings every now and again. I have some strange admirers. We wow. enjoy those. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm that's, sorry. I'm sorry. This is that's the darkest I'm going to get here on the family friendly podcast. That's wow. That's yeah. That is kind of disturbing. Um, really <laughs> disturbing. But anyway, guys. Hey, Sean. Thank you for filling in we really appreciate it you're welcome i've been wanting to get on a nerds on history episode for a while but i was a little intimidated because you guys both do really a lot of research and i you know with the editing that i'm doing and prepping for nerds on film sometimes i don't have it but this was a, a subject i was pretty passionate about because i'd seen some documentaries on tv about it and i already knew some about it so this was really fun and i don't think we've done episodes just you and me since we did the batman and the superman episodes on nerds on film that's that's exactly right and the mo bros do nerds on history that's actually kind of the mo bros do history is kind of a, yeah. a, a mo, really the mo bro db cooper show the mo bro db cooper show bam episode <laughs> title right there no we don't Settled. have to call it that do you i, I call it that dude the mo bro cooper show that would be oh perfect awesome until next time stay nerdy and tune into us next week same nerd time same nerd channel Deuteronomy.com. Goodbye. That was really fun, Brian. I uh, I only got a couple days left in town, but ow, what? You're shining that light in my face, and it's really, really annoying. It's okay. I just I, I have a I have a couple of. Uh...
the things I just, I just, I just things I need to need to know. You can't, Brian. You can't do what you did to Dave to me. Okay, I've seen CSI. I know what you're doing. You think I killed Eric? Interesting that you thought about killing him. I think we've all thought about killing him, Brian. Can I just be frank? Yeah. Of I'll all, be Sean. You be frank. Of all the nerds here, you're easily the most psychotic. So obviously, I don't think I'm that's most true, suspect. Brian. Can you explain to me why I found a baby doll with a beard that's been scribbled on with Sharpie and a small fedora on it? Hmm? I I like to play Nerdonomy House, and I couldn't be without them on my trip. I, I just like to take the dolls, and I put them on the table, and I'm like, I'm Eric Brickmont. I like Egypt, and I like, you know, Mexican food. And then I do me, and I'm like, I'm Sean, and I can't go one episode without swearing. Me, 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 me. That's disturbing beyond words, but yet I kind of believe it. All right, can I go now? Yeah, yeah, you can go.